Welcome back to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Dushinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist, joined today by my colleague Christopher Bedford, senior editor at the Federalist, on this occasion of the day in which we heard historic oral arguments uh, as that related to the case or in the case of Dobbs v. B. Jackson. Chris, this was fascinating um, to get this level of insight into the justices thinking um, as it pertains to Roe, as it pertains to Casey, and now as it pertains to Dobbs. I'm going to put up for everyone watching on the live stream a headline from CNBC that reads, Supreme Court conservatives look ready to gut Roe v. Wade during arguments in Mississippi abortion case. The implication of that is when the decision is handed down in Dobbs, Roe v. Wade's uh, federal implications would be undermined, would be overturned, and states would be uh, left to their own basically immediately to determine how they legislate and how they govern the issue of abortion. What did you think of the oral arguments that played out today, Chris? I think that the the pro-life side executed flawlessly. Uh, they stayed largely, basically entirely on mark. They, they stuck exactly to the facts. They didn't just simply rely on, on any motion. And I think the left seemingly did not. You, you, got a, you got a good idea from some of the questioning, some of the, uh, some of the harder lines of questioning, some of the more drilling down that the conservative judges were engaged, including, uh, surprisingly, Brett, or maybe not surprisingly, it, it comports with his faith entirely, but Brett, uh, uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who was really engaged in this, in, in this discussion. Now, it's worth positing all of that, that, but this isn't this is kind of like exit polls. It's actually even less reliable than exit polls to draw too many conclusions about how the court's going to rule on this. For example, Roberts, who here is still definitely a swing vote, Chief Justice Roberts, he's someone who really interrogated the government during the Obamacare rulings, interrogated uh, uh, Bra- President Barack Obama's uh, solicitors or, or lawyers there, really dug into them. And he ended up leaving. And the courtroom, reading the newspapers, seeing the reactions, seeing the outrage, seeing the terror of the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN, and coming to a different conclusion than people might have guessed that he was going to come to after watching those arguments. So there's still going to be a couple months before there's any kind of ruling made, which is why if you're, in, if you're a Christian media organization or a media organization that has any respect at all for life or any respect at all for actual science or any respect at all for babies, you need to be... Hitting, banging these drums, making noise and providing some cover, bringing out these facts. Because as we, I think as we saw today, as particularly, uh, when you do lay out the actual facts of what abortion is, when the, its defenders have to talk about the actually what it is, they flounder because it's a barbaric and disgusting practice that's impossible for any civilized human to defend. Well, let's talk about that because it definitely got uh, it, it definitely got interesting today in, in those questions because we got to hear the thinking basically of Sonia Sotomayor and Elena, Elena Kagan in thinking. particular. Yes, the thinking um, as it pertains to life. And there's this incredible moment where Sonia Sotomayor is speaking to the, the Solicitor General of Mississippi and talks about how is the question of viability, she, she challenged him and said, is the question of viability not entirely a religious 
concept? Is that not entirely your religious belief? Um, is, is viability essentially not subjective religious thinking is basically what Sonia Sotomayor was arguing. Um, and it, it seemed like a very personal, uh, a very personal argument, uh, I, I would add. Um, and I, I'm curious, Chris, and we're joined right now, actually, by our colleague, Molly Hemingway. Molly, we're talking right now about Sonia Sotomayor's extended monologue and her questioning um, about uh, how viability is fundamentally uh, in the opinion she was expressing, a question, a religious question, and a subjective question. Molly, what was your reaction to that? So I actually came in after she talked, so I haven't read the transcript of what she said. Uh, but in general, you might remember that when she was nominated, there was a lot of concern from the left that she was not of the caliber that was needed on the court. And I think people who've been able to hear her in oral arguments last year and this year, understand why there was that concern. She just doesn't seem to have the uh, reasoning that you would hope for if you were on the left uh, for such an important case. So not just that, but her struggles. What was the other thing that she was kind of getting dunked on? On brain dead? Oh, right. Brain dead, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, suggesting that signs of life were not signs of life. Um, yeah. It, it, but it had like an old fashioned uh, earlier. This is this is an argument that somewhat could have been made with more of a straight face before the, the massive advances that we've had in science and in preserving life and in protecting children who are who are born prematurely and, and being able to see them and being able to understand different nervous reactions and different uh, to tell that they can actually the children can feel pain. We, we've advanced so far in pregnancy and our ability to to study pregnancies that this science of it's just a matter of hocus pocus, just close your eyes, isn't that faith? A baby isn't a baby until it comes out. The viability questions that she was talking about, those aren't matters of faith. Those are those are demonstrated scientific uh, questions. And and she looked like, like you said, Molly, she looked like her reasoning was really just not up to par for a Supreme Court justice. So and I think that's why the liberals are really worried. I do also want to point out that there have been really great histories written on how Roe v. Wade was initially decided. And a lot of it, was the the seven men who wrote that decision it's not true that they didn't understand that a baby's life was being terminated but it is true that the science was much less um well known than it is now and that some of the some of the science that was put into the case that be that ends up being decided was pretty flawed and so that is a good reason to revisit some of these things, as was as it was in Casey. Um, I'm not saying that they're excused for what they did, for what those men did, but um, we do know much more about, you know, there's like sort of no question human life begins when it begins. It's not, um, you know, it does not begin at life, even if Sonia Sotomayor, or at, at birth, um, even if Sonia Sotomayor wants to believe that's when it happens. I saw Sonia Sotomayor's thinking is very representative of this facile uh, liberal perspective on abortion that has dominated for uh, in recent years. And it's interesting because it's increasingly in the face of the capital S science, as somebody like Dr. Fauci might say, um, on, on general questions, not particularly abortion. But there's this this notion that Roe is a 
is a great decision and it is is in some ways to be revered and molly i'm curious as to how you would explain to people who are maybe coming in late and don't have or don't have a particularly strong understanding of the legal our, our legal concepts as it relates to abortion that were established in roe and then challenged in casey and changed a little bit in casey why are roe and casey on the line in dobbs so it's not, it, it's funny how people talk about Roe versus what knowledgeable people say about Roe. Someone said in the arguments today, I think it was the person arguing against the Mississippi law, that everyone knows what Roe is about. And I mean, only in the loosest sense do people understand it's about abortion. Anyone who actually has looked at it, including people on the left, know that it's like just really horribly done decision. Um and it was not well thought out. Like Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself would talk about how it was a flawed decision, which is why when the Casey versus Planned Parenthood case came up in 1992, they had to kind of rewrite the whole law because it was just sort of this imaginary trimester system that they put in place with different levels of potential limits based on arbitrary trimester divisions. Um they, but the big problem with Roe, of course, is that it invents a right to abortion out of whole cloth, basically. There's no understanding of the Constitution uh, prior to that point that would have ever seen a right to abortion in it, including that, you know, many states had passed laws restricting abortion throughout the country's history, even before we were a country. And so this idea that, in fact, there's like this secret hidden right to abortion to kill a child uh, based in privacy was just not the strongest thing. So Casey bolsters this, coming up with a new standard that you have to meet if you're going to implement any restrictions, also just invented out of, you know, out of like a legislature of nine people. And so that's the reason why Dobbs is so interesting is it's it's on a collision course headlong with these precedents. Um, the Mississippi law limits abortion after 13 weeks. That is in contrast to what Roe and Casey have set. And so the court either has to uh, reaffirm this imaginary, not actually real right to abortion or it has to come up with something new, which is why I thought the questioning from Kavanaugh was so interesting when he talks about how the most neutral like position you could possibly take is to let states handle this. And you know, some states have laws that um, protect unborn life. Some states do not. And so it would be handled on a state-by-state -state basis with the people of each state being able to decide the law since it's not in the Constitution. And, and to your point, Molly, about the different complications and the, the, the fact that I think a lot of these different laws are really, and these rulings are really understood very loosely. I think there's somewhat, especially in the left-wing press, a very loose understanding of what Dobbs is going to do. I, I, I very much doubt that we're going to get some kind of ruling that says Roe v. Wade is overturned or KCB plan, Planned Parenthood versus Casey is overturned. Instead, we're probably going to get some changes to laws if, if, if the, if the pro-life side wins on this one that says, yeah, you, you can't, the state can make this law based on, uh, has nothing to do with viability on pregnancy and on when an abortion is set, like in Mississippi, where those defend the law, which would essentially gut some of the, the legal reasoning of previous cases, especially Casey. But, but I, 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 I'd, I'd be very surprised to see any kind of text that says this 
ruling is overturned. That has, that has changed the legal understanding, I think. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I think the Roe and Casey are just deeply flawed and they're not yeah. working. I mean, you're getting more and more extreme measures being taking place, like what happened in Texas with people coming up with like really creative ways to get around the the precedents because they're not working. So I absolutely would fully expect. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is even activists on the left, I saw Andrea Mitchell retweeting yes. something that one of her fellow journalists said, you know, about like they're expecting this to overturn Roe and return it to the states. The Pete New York Williams. Times had an editorial this weekend where they were trying to kind of put a happy face on it, saying it's not so bad that this will be returned to the states. They're, you know, they they seem to think that this will go fine for them uh, when things are being battled at a state level. And so I would fully I mean, I would basically, I would be really surprised if you don't see something extremely big and major in June. And Chris, I want to get your perspective on this as well. I'll start with Molly since she she did literally write the book on Brett Kavanaugh. I'm curious, Molly, uh, for your reaction as to how the what the questioning revealed um, about the thinkings of people like Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, especially given these new questions that have popped up about the confirmation process on the right uh, as it relates to justices. W- what do you think uh, pro-life people, not just conservatives, but pro-life people should should take away from what we heard today? So I try actually not to read too much into oral arguments and questions because you never know exactly what's going on when someone's asking a question. Are they asking it because they really genuinely are trying to work through the answer? Are they trying to persuade a colleague? Are they just kind of trying to pinpoint holes in one side or the other's arguments? Like it can mean any number of things and people make a lot of mistakes because also what happens from this point is they all go back and discuss and see which side they're on. They kind of negotiate. And that has a huge role to play in the outcome. And a lot can happen in terms of internal and external pressure campaigns. But having said all of that, the questioning could not have gone better for the pro-life side or worse for the pro-abortion, for the, for the pro-choice side. And I thought with Kavanaugh's questioning, it was just really interesting because stare decisis was a big issue in his confirmation battle. Um, because you had some pro, uh, some abortion rights supporting Republican senators who really wanted to hear from him that he would, he would uphold Roe, and so, and you've heard this in so many of the confirmation battles, not just Kavanaugh, but all of the preceding ones, and they all talk about the importance of stare decisis about precedent, uh, but he points out he goes through a litany of bad decisions that the court has made, you know, from. Dred Scott to Korematsu talking about bad decisions and what do you do when you have bad decisions? It doesn't mean that you are bound to keep, you know, bound to keep supporting slavery or, you know, viewing, um, you know, separate but equal as constitutional throughout all space and time. And then I thought Alito coming in after that and asking because the um, the anti-Mississippi case people said something like, you can only revisit stuff if new information comes to light and no new information has come to light on abortion in 50 years. <laughs> Alito was like, you're telling me that you couldn't have revisited Plessy v. Ferguson on on its own merits of it being like a bad decision un- unless new information came to light. And the lady was like, that's exactly what I'm saying. And everyone was like, ooh, bad, bad answer. <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> well, Chris, you had a similar perspective. You you similarly said that the questioning couldn't have gone better for the pro-life side. Um, explain why you're of similar thinking uh, with Molly on that. 
Well, exactly what Molly said is that you have no idea exactly where the questioning is going, why the why the justice is asking those questions, what deliberations are going to happen behind, what, what kind of bargaining is going to happen beyond that. And then what other what other factors are going to take into place? Like as we, as we talked about earlier in the show and we saw uh, Chief Justice Roberts really interrogating President Barack Obama's defense of Obamacare and then deciding, reading the New York Times, reading the Washington Post, reading the CNN and after all of that, coming down in the decision that said, I'm going to preserve Obamacare under some kind of a ruling that really didn't make sense. You, you see these kinds of things uh, previously uh, with, with Supreme Court. So it's just, it's just hard to really exactly guess how this is going to go. But I have seen some folks who are a lot smarter than me saying recently that they think that now Roberts might join a majority to try and over to try and change this law and to be a victory for pro-life people. But that necess- wouldn't necessarily be a great thing. Because if you had maybe Justice Thomas, uh, Clarence Thomas writing the majority opinion or someone like that, as opposed to Roberts, then you're going to get a more likely a harder, a better ruling out of this. Whereas Roberts, someone who's known as a peacemaker, who's really interested in politics of this and really interested in what he says is preserving the integrity of the court and the, uh, it would be someone who might try to water this down. But either way, we're Republicans in the Senate and Republicans in D.C., uh, Republicans in the states have loved Roe v. Wade for a long time, the elected politicians, because this is a hard fight. It's a difficult fight. It's not one that they're comfortable talking about. It's not. It, it, it has to d- delve down into matters of life and death and choice and religion and, and heaven and hell. And all of these things come to the front, whereas that tax policy is pretty easy. I, I, I cut your taxes. The economy improves, yada, yada, yada. They like those fights. They like that battle. They don't like to talk about abortion. Roe v. Wade and the rulings that we've had on transgender transgenderism have really removed these fights from their arena. So they can make all the promises in the world that they want, but then they can go back and say, well, it's just settled law. It's the law of the land. There's up to the Supreme Court. That's a complete and total cop-out. And I think after this, Ben had a really great piece in the transom this morning uh, talking about no matter which way this goes, the politics are now out in the open. The the right is not going to demand uh, take yeah uh, take these wishy washy answers and accept them. And especially if this is taken down a notch, if Roe v. Wade and Casey are really taken down a notch and gutted in some ways, then you're going to see a huge amount of push and a real invigoration on the state level to fight to try and uh, change these laws. And really shockingly to me, just to f- wrap up. Texas, where the, a lot of these laws have happened, where, where we've had one of these fights. If you go through Austin, Texas, you don't see the signs. You don't see all these pro-abortion signs. Like Black Lives Matter comes out or, or, or gay marriage comes out, and there's a rainbow flag and a black nationalist flag on every single store in Washington, D.C., or all these different liberal cities. They want to make sure that they are part of this. They love this whole thing. But it hasn't happened with abortion in Texas, and it makes me wonder if – if it's going to die more with a whimper than with a roar, if it's actually overturned. Yeah, so Molly obviously has a busy day and just uh, jumped out, but I wanted to actually put up for those watching live, uh, Molly's tweets on the screen. She was at the Supreme Court this morning um, and said, today is the day many have prayed and worked for with a crowd of pro-life activists on those steps of the Supreme Court. There were, of course, pro-choice leftist activists um, at the on the steps of the Supreme Court as well. And it's always interesting when there are abortion demonstrations to sort of observe the clash. Um, it's 
it's one of the few issues where you actually find activists on the right that are so deeply engaged, um, but never really on the establishment right. It's a it's a big difference. You know, these are NARAL is an establishment group on the left, but the pro-life groups really haven't been establishment groups on the right. And that gets to exactly what Chris has, has said, what just said, and what we've been saying on this podcast since we learned that they would take up Dobbs, which is that that's terrifying to people at the RNC. I guarantee you that people sitting at the RNC were are, are terrified of what could happen with this case and are very nervous about it um, because they don't think it's good politics and it'll be decided in a midterm cycle. Um, and I, Molly's tweet reminded me of what I heard from uh, Mike Pence yesterday at an event he did with the Susan B. Anthony list and with uh, Young America's Foundation where Chris and I are both involved. Um, Mike Pence talked about uh, abortion as an industry. He talked about it as a for-profit industry. And there is a boldness in the rhetoric when it comes to the issues of life that I don't know, Chris, I I think this is new on the right. The left loves to think of uh, the conservative movement as the sort of moral majority movement, um, as the sort of uh, red meat movement, as the, the culture, the toothless rube culture warriors. But that's just never been true of the Republican establishment. It's, it's, such a, it's such a misunderstanding of the Republican establishment that's been embedded into our cultural understanding of the issue. Do you think that's changing, though? And, and how much does the technology and the science that you mentioned earlier have to do with that? Yeah, I think it's changing. I think it's changing in the young people. I think that young people are like are like to be rebellious and they like to push out against these different things. And especially a couple of things have started to change. One, they're rebelling against the status quo where every single corporation and yada, yada, Hollywood, everything are, are super pro-abortion and all, all the celebrities. That's one thing that's going to cause them to question it. Uh, also, the left has become extremely strident in their views as opposed to saying safe and rare. Uh, and legal, they're saying they're saying just comments, shout your abortion. That's kind of disgusting demonstrations that we've seen in public, where this is a pride. Where I got an email today from a group called Catholics for Choice. Those they should be called heretics. That's what that's exactly what that is. <laughs> to say that, uh, saying that their their abortion was a blessing. Well, that is that is a heresy. That's an affront to God. It's insane. But this kind of upfront language, being proud of it and shouting it, is a is a real big turnoff. Another turning point on this, it, it came from a very unlikely place, which was Donald Trump, someone who I don't think had thought very deeply about this issue for many years of his life. A lot of folks had not thought deeply about it. It's pro-choice or it's pro-life. Or, I don't know. It's the Bible people versus the feminists. They don't really want to think too much about it. I think that Trump had probably lived largely like that, just kind of going through all, all the steps and not really understanding what this was. Well, that, was, that, that changed, and he was reached uh, during the 2016 elections, I remember being at a, because I, I came to the Las Vegas debates too late to get past Secret Service, which was a blessing. Uh, <laughs> so I got to watch it at a Trump rally at a cowboy bar outside of Las Vegas, a much better place than sitting next to political weirdos uh, while they drink their coffee. The, and I'm watching this, this television screen, and Trump came out with the fervor of someone who had just been converted. And he yeah. said, do you, do you know what this is? Do you know what late-term abortion is? It's It's disgusting. They take the baby, they, they, they tear the baby apart. He was, he was talking about it just very viscerally on the national stage. We, there have been a lot of people who have been, it's been a long time since we have seen a, a, such a visceral description of abortion anywhere on the national stage. And even when we had that, it was years and years and years ago, and it was in Congress uh, when we saw such visceral, no, uh, well, I'm just talking about how it's, Donald Trump was one of the things in 2016 that had really changed things by having such a visceral description of abortion on the stage in Las Vegas. And that's something that we used to see from some of the Pennsylvania Republicans, from some of the other 
uh, House members who decades ago, abortion was their major issue. They were willing to talk about this. They were willing to go on national television. But this was the biggest platform. And, and those folks had really quieted down. The folks in D.C. who their only number one issue was abortion had quieted down. That left a real vacuum. And Trump changed that. And I think part of that, it, even if unintentionally, really really energized a lot of folks on the pro and the pro-life side to say, see, someone will say at the national stage, someone will come to our marches, someone's willing to talk about this and, and do combat for this. And with the with the left going over and over and over and over uh, getting crazier and crazier and crazier on this, I think it's really emboldened a lot of folks to be more strident towards ending abortion forever. And, and Molly, we started this conversation by looking at the pictures you posted um, and the tweet that you sent. And I wanted to ask you what you saw at the Supreme Court today um, as the oral arguments were playing out. Yeah, so it was interesting. It was the first time I recall seeing that the two sides of an issue in front of the court were given separate protest areas. Mm. And so um, each side had a stage or I think I actually only saw the pro-life side because they were separated and we came from that direction. Um, but they had a, uh, a very sizable pro-life contingent. Um, it was very joyful. They had, you know, live music playing like lots of funny <laughs> music, like Bee Gees or, you know, staying alive kind of songs, lots of like R and B. It was interesting that it seemed like it was just a who's who of everyone who had spent the last few decades working in the movement. You know, uh, Marjorie Dannenfelser and Penny Nance, and um, just like all sorts of people who had started big organizations or little organizations. There were about seventy-five doctors there who formed kind of a the they sort of did the pathway for people who were going up to speak. And they were all very nice and encouraging, um, you know, some various civil rights leaders, pretty large contingent of secular pro-lifers. Mm. Um, you know, I saw a sign that said, like, feminist, queer, disabled, rape survivor for life, you know, something like that. Um, different women legislatures from across the country had signs so showing which state they were from. And I saw Maine and, and uh, Delaware and Missouri. Um, Alveda King was there and it was you know, very cool to see her kind of come through. And it was just, a you know, I think everyone kept saying the same thing, which is they couldn't believe they were at this moment. You know, so much work had gone into getting to Casey, Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992. It was a huge letdown to the movement. And I don't think anyone anticipated it would be this long before you had another opportunity to take such a swing at row. And so people were very aware of the seriousness. One of the things I thought was really interesting, um, the woman who was kind of leading people through different speakers, her name is Allison Howard Santafonte. And she said something like, we are here because we love humanity. And that includes the people on the other side. And she says it like at the moment that the other side is screaming something about, you know, <laughs> <laughs> loving abortion or whatever. Yes. And it was just an interesting moment. Um, but really, it just seemed touching that she put it that way. And the, all the speakers that were there throughout the whole day were women. Mm. One of the things they kept emphasizing is that you do not need to commit violence in the womb to have a fulfilling life and that that's not true. And I thought that was just a powerful message that they just kept reiterating with each speaker. 
So we have a clip actually that I'm going to show uh, you all, and I will uh, just preface it by saying to viewers, this is of uh, demonstrators, uh, pro-choice demonstrators, pro-choice. I'll put in air quotes demonstrators that were on the steps of the of the Supreme Court as well. As Molly mentioned, it, it they were separated actually. There were separate demonstration areas for the the uh, both sides, and I'm going to play the clip, but it's a this sort of disturbing. John Daniel Davidson, I think, said it best when he tweeted out the video um, with the caption, Ghouls. Okay, so what you saw right there were uh, were heard right there. You heard a lot of chanting abortion forever, abortion forever. And uh, it was pro-choice, again, in air quotes, activists uh, taking abortion pills on the steps of the Supreme Court. Um, Meanwhile, you have headlines like this one we showed earlier from CNBC. Supreme Court conservatives look ready to gut Roe v. Wade during arguments in Mississippi abortion case. Chris, you mentioned earlier how the technology has really, really shifted and put some wind in the sails of the pro-life movement. Um, And yet, we see even more, I think, uh, graphic boldness from the left as the left has claimed more and more turf in the culture war. Pro-choice, pro-abortion activists have gotten more and more, I think, bold and, and more and more confident. Can you sort of talk about your take on that dynamic? Because it's an interesting one, um, just not so long after Democrats were proudly talking about safe, legal and rare. It's, and that's such a creepy video. I pray that that was street theater and not actually what they said that they were doing. Uh, this just kind of plays off of a lot of the left's tactics. And that makes me wonder what the, who the heck they're, they're trying to reach. We talked about this a little bit on Thanksgiving, uh, which is you want, to be the, you want to be the party that says no more holidays, no more Christmas, no more Thanksgiving, no more July 4th. Uh, and then you want to be the party that, sh- that stops people from getting to work and shuts down traffic and creates traffic jams because that's how you think you're going to, to reach people on your global warming stupidity. Well, this, this takes it a whole step farther. When you are representing the movement that wears all black and does child sacrifice on the streets of the Supreme Court, well, you're a pretty extreme party. You might have to start wondering, are we the baddies? Are we the bad guys here? Because that is what those women were doing, the way they were dressed, the, the, the howling that they were doing. Uh, I can't imagine someone just looking at that and saying, that's the side that I'm on. That's the side that seems reasonable. I think a lot of folks, I think a lot of folks generally do have, they actually don't really have their minds nearly as much made up on this issue as they would like, simply because they haven't really thought deeply about it. But if you were to contrast what Molly was talking about, when you had up there with like Mary Vote up there saying that you don't need to kill your child to have a fulfilling life. And the organizers saying, we come here with love in our hearts for all of you, even the folks who, of course, we're, we're disagreeing with, or as Trump would say, even the haters and losers. And you have the other side taking abortion pills and shrieking and howling on the Capitol steps. Well, that's a, that's a hard political fight to win. And I don't think it gains a lot of new adherence. 
No, I, I agree with that. And I think it's a, a sign, a, a really bad sign for the left of how the metastasizing of radicalism um, that has been enabled by the media for so long and by the establishment Democrats for so long who have courted groups like Narol into the establishment. Um, and there was that meld between the establishment on the left and the activist groups, the feminist groups on the left, the, the gay rights groups on the left, they're mainstream groups. Um, and they have been for at least the last decade in a way that the cultural the cultural groups on the right really haven't been in a very long time and they haven't really oh, been I mean, good at if, go you're, ahead. If, if you're if you're the vice president's ugly niece you get a, you get the cover of glamour magazine and the modeling gig right. I mean, if you're like the most prominent young right winger you get a uh, got to sell gold when you retire or sell pain medication now the, the <laughs> glamorization uh that the left and the access to to elite Hollywood that the left has is is completely different from the right, but they've completely abandoned trying to use symbols that are more that are more nationally shared and, and more human than, uh, for example, when the left was protesting rather successfully, the Vietnam War uh, the United States was involved in, they would do things like set up crosses on campuses to try and re to, for all the people, young men and women who are or young men who have died in Vietnam. Uh, you see still some of that. They, they did, a lot of, did a lot of that during COVID. They had American flags set up next to my house on city property only when uh, Trump was president, not when Biden was president. Mm. That, uh, that was for everyone who's died of COVID because you look at that and it makes you, makes you sad. It makes you think about all those someone maybe that you lost. Uh, the, but these are symbols, the cross, the flag that, that really reach out to all of us. That's why people like President Barack Obama, who invited all these radicals in and was significantly better at controlling them than 95-year-old Nancy Pelosi and Schumer and the rest of them are, uh, he, he used the language of Ronald Reagan. If you were to watch one of his, one of his State of the Unions, you'd think that he was saying conservative things because of all the language that he used. He, he wasn't. He was a sweet nothings. Uh, but he understood that that's how you reach people. Uh, wearing all black and looking ghoulish and shrieking about abortions, that is not how you reach people. That's how you really turn people off. And, and that kind of activism, I, I, I think, is, is very negative for the left. And it's honestly good to see. I, I like to see stuff like that, except for the abortion. I hope that was fake. And I like to see people like AOC out there. I like it when the Rashida Tlaib, I like it when they're open with their anti-Semitism, when they're open with their love of abortion, when they're open with their Green New Deal to change the economy and make this place more red, not green. I like an honest left. I like a left that says we should abolish the prisons, that we should abolish the police. I think it's a real threat to this country. I think I, think I hope that people really wake up. But it, it, you don't need to you don't conservatives no longer need to say stupid arguments like, well, actually, uh, the Ku Klux Klan was Democrat, like, as if that matters 150 years later, the or 100 years later. Now they can say, look, they're teaching racism in classes. They're openly defending this that you don't we don't need to talk about history because they're doing it right now. And, and they're making a better case than a lot of folks on the right are uh, mainstream politicians on the right are. So I think that's a really important point, and I think it's getting to uh, I, I think it, it gets to why the oral arguments that we heard play out um, were relevant to this, I think, sea change that a lot of people are starting to feel. And we don't know how it's going to turn out, but we do know that uh, there's been, I think, probably tactical overreach that the likes of uh, people like Chris Rufo have uh, used to the advantage of not the right, but sane people uh, around the country. And the way that abortion will represent part of that struggle is really interesting. Molly earlier said that she would 
expect something big uh, in June. And this seems to be happening all very quickly for the left. And the media's reaction to the arguments was just really interesting. And I, I hinted at this earlier, but uh, or, I, or I previewed this sort of point earlier, but there's been so much conversation uh, in the culture about the how, how essential Roe is and, and how Roe is to be revered. But it's something that even Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself um, I, I referred to as a bad decision. Lawrence Tribe, you can just go down the list, Alan Dershowitz, of people generally on the left who agreed that Roe was poorly decided and is weak and kind of a stain on the legacy of, of the Supreme Court, even people who aren't pro-life. Um, and it's going to create this huge reckoning. And it's one that the media has not set our culture up to, uh, I think, absorb healthily. And I want to get your take on that, Chris, because the oral arguments were um, when you have headlines, when you have like uh, what's his name? Pete Williams from NBC making really bold claims. Andrea Mitchell, as Molly mentioned, making bold claims. CNBC saying Supreme Court conservatives look ready to gut Roe v. Wade during arguments in Mississippi abortion case. Um, the, the media's coverage was, I, I think, kind of accurate as to what played out, that this was not that these arguments did not go as well for the left as they did for the right um, in, in the way that the, the justices were reacting and asking their questions. So what does that reckoning look like in this country if suddenly some something that everybody is conditioned to see by our pop culture um, as a an essential pillar of democracy and women's rights and feminism. Uh, what does it mean if that suddenly goes away? Now, a friend of mine said to me at dinner the night when he was trying to convince me that it was time to leave Washington, D.C. and be happy for once. He said, uh, I said, well, I, I can't leave. That's where all the political decisions are made. That's where a lot of the power is. That's, that's what my job is. That's what I'm covering. He said, are they? I mean, when's the last time Congress has really made a political decision that had a major impact, uh, uh, for the right at least. That When is the last time? He goes, you mean just waiting around a couple more years to watch more executive orders follow through? And he was right. And that the reason why, it made me think a lot, and the reason why I bring that up now is because our whole society and our system of government is supremely disordered, and it has been partially because and this, the, the Congress has completely withdrawn its oversight of the executive. The, the bureaucracy that Woodrow Wilson started in the executive has grown and grown and grown. Any kind of chance to ever check that when we came, the Republicans came in in 1994 was basically gutted by by Speaker Gingrich, you know, trying to do good but do, and then doing wrong and and slashing Congress's budget to even be able to combat these things. Anyone who's in Congress now who's been in there for 40, 50 years will tell you uh, it, the system has entirely changed. They're not interested in legislating. They'd rather let the Supreme Court make these decisions. There are actual senators who've said, thank God, when the Supreme Court, Republican senators, so, uh, when the Supreme Court said uh, took care of the transgender rules for them so that they yes. felt like they didn't have to fight that anymore. They don't want to fight it. Now, if Roe v. Wade and, and, and Casey are, are, are gutted or changed or weakened or overturned, well, that's going to be a, a finally, in a good way, a, an actual return to the states of the power. So a place like New York State, where they basically said they can kill a child who is born and is alive, well, it's not going to change many things for the poor children who are born there, whose, whose mothers decided they needed to kill them for a fulfilling life or for whatever reason. But if you're in Texas or Mississippi or Alabama or uh, Florida, maybe, or a whole slew of other states, well, that's going to start to change. And the power is going to go back to the hands of the people where it ought to have been in the first place, not not the courts. not, And and they'll have to make, make those decisions. Suddenly, in a real way, uh, your state senators and your state congressmen are going to become very 
more important to you? People, I think people will become more engaged in the democratic process on the left and the right in the states in a way that they may they have not always been in a lot of states in the past. And and that is uh, a, a positive thing. I would obviously I would I would love to wave a magic wand and, and have abortion banned uh, in the entirety of the United States tomorrow. But to return this question to the people, as the Supreme Court ought to do with a number of other. Uh, of its rulings is a, is a step in, for good governance and a step for a reinvigorated republic. Uh, it's, we've, we've seen so much, so much bad news so quickly over the last 10 years, how much this country has changed, how much the culture has changed, how radical things have gotten. It's, it's, it's good to see a, a glimmer of hope, and I, and, I, and I hope that it's not dashed. Well, the one thing that has changed, uh, I, I think, in a, the opposite direction for once is uh, the public's take on abortion. Um, and I, I actually think that's really meaningful. I mean, obviously, we all agree that's really meaningful, but I think it's meaningful, particularly in the context of all of the overreach of abortion rights activists proudly taking what they claim were abortion pills um, in, in front of the Supreme Court. It's it's a moment where the culture is really changing. It's a moment where we're adapting to technology and, and what it allows us to do. Um, and if you want to talk about a social justice issue, oh, abortion is your is your issue to talk about more than uh, perhaps anything. Um, so it, it does feel like we're in the middle of a sea change. It's very interesting that this case is being heard in the middle of uh, what feels like the middle of a sea change. Um, and so I think the oral arguments, to your point, Chris, got at what Ruth Bader Ginsburg talked about, what a lot of leftist scholars have talked about over the years in terms of the Supreme Court wresting this decision from the people from the legislative branch federally and uh, on a state basis, we are now looking back at decades of uh, the, the courts making this decision and decades of it going very badly for the country um, and because of that, because this was decided by the courts. So if ever there were a moment for us to reckon with that failure, this seems to be it. It does, and but it's not made yet. So for all those who are out there and who are tuning in and and for all their friends and the folks who actually care about this and are really hopeful that this could make this be a change. This, this is just the beginning. This can't be, this, it was wonderful to see a thousand university, Liberty University students out there and a bunch of other activists out there today. But this, this, this movement can't just be a twice a year sort of thing. And people need to be writing to their local papers. People need to be talking to their friends. People need to be upfront about this, talking in their churches, trying to make noise. Uh, it's it's interesting. We always make fun of France for for <laughs> it being such a bunch of wussy liberals. But if when 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 the government of France decided to change marriage on between a man and a woman to between a man and whoever, the the streets of Paris were filled with millions of marchers who who marched yes. for weeks. Young. The Catholics came out hard. Young people, old people, priests. They said uh, they said no <laughs> the uh, to all of it. And we need a. It, it, it need a movement that's much more like that, something that's that's letting the justices know that they have the support. And and while you and I, from our dealings and our travels around the country, talking to a lot of folks may have seen that the, the situation on life is, is really changing, even on the college campuses, the justices uh, need to understand that as well. And I don't think they always have that opportunity. Not They're not all like Clarence Thomas, just traveling across the country, trying to see everything in an RV. when they're not yeah. working. <laughs>
That's right. Well, and to just wrap up, I think a final observation is just from what Chris said and what Molly said. Um, there's a there's something about the norms, our cultural norms that are being challenged. It's not just about our legal norms. It's about our cultural norms that are being challenged and tested in this case. And I think we saw that in the questions. We saw that in Sonia Sotomayor's face plant um, and in even some of what Justice Kagan said as well. So with that, Christopher Bedford, senior editor at The Federalist. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Emily. This was, uh, it was good to come on and talk about something that was uplifting, hopefully. Yes, hopefully, Keep hopefully. Running. Even though we had to watch those women um, purportedly do something horrible or listen to it, uh, as may be the case if you're, if you're catching the broadcast over audio, we appreciate everyone's time and, and taking the time to listen. Um, we'll be following this obviously, obviously closely. There's so much to watch for. With that, I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. You've been listening to another edition of The Federalist Radio Hour. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.